For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how Pima County might pay for newly opened migrant shelters. Find out about the potentially life-saving message behind more than 1,000 empty backpacks on the U of A campus. We'll tell you about an effort to increase international cooperation using the Persian language. And Janie Lee Simner reads from her new book for young readers, Tierney West, Professional Adventurer. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. An influx of migrants seeking asylum at the southern border pushed temporary shelters in the Tucson area to maximum capacity over Easter weekend. The shelters are housing people who need somewhere to go for a few nights before they travel to meet friends or family elsewhere in the U.S. and await their court dates. The city of Tucson and Pima County opened emergency shelters that weekend to help house the overflow of immigrants. Pima County Administrator Chuck Huckleberry estimated the cost to do this was about $10,000. Lorraine Rivera interviewed Huckleberry about his proposal to use a federal grant called Stone Garden to pay for these ongoing costs. Stone Garden funds are typically used to pay for overtime hours when sheriff's deputies assist with border-related incidents. But last year, the Pima County Board of Supervisors voted to turn down this federal funding. Here's a segment of Lorraine's interview with Chuck Huckleberry. Let's begin with laying it out for us. Does Pima County currently receive Stone Garden funding? Uh, Pima County has received Stone Garden funds for probably about the last 10 years. It's just this last year, uh, about mid-year, the board voted to actually terminate the Stone Garden grant and contract. And so for about the last six months or eight months, we've not had a Stone Garden grant. There's a new grant proposal and it comes every year uh, and it'll be before the board on May the 7th of this year and it's really up to the board as to whether or not they accept the Stone Garden grant or they can accept it with conditions and then determine if the Stone Garden administration function from the federal government and state government can make those modifications. Are you at all concerned about some of the optics when maybe the, the taxpayers Pima County look at and say, wait, we didn't want the funding, now we do and now we're back and forth. So. What's the public to make of that? Well, I think the public should understand that this is kind of a balancing act. If you think about the concerns by some citizens over the police agency actions, uh, the response of the sheriff to be more transparent and, and open, and to utilize the funds for other purposes that offset expenses that are incurred by the taxpayers anyway. So I think it's really balancing the interest of the taxpayer to now accept this grant. How much of a balance did you really have to go through during Easter weekend when you had this influx of people and the county had to step up? It was quite an exercise. And, you know, we had to mobilize people on a, on a holiday weekend. And uh, we had people come in and, and um, do what they're supposed to do and, and stepped up and provided that humanitarian aid. And we processed over 200 uh, asylum seekers uh, in that weekend. The average length of stay in our pop-up shelter was only 2.08 days, so very quickly. 
and they got people moving on to their final destination. But they, they basically provided them shelter and food and water and medical assistance. The county, was it prepared for that or is it prepared for another challenge that could be coming? Well, you know, we have an office of emergency management and that's what they do. And so, you know, I think the key for us is that we know that in the sheltering uh, individuals who have looked for asylum, that our nonprofit community is really stressed. Um, they've been doing most of this work. The faith-based nonprofit community has basically processed about 7,500 asylum seekers through this community onto final destinations, uh, but they're stressed, and they're stressed to the limit. And the problem with that is that these are the same faith-based nonprofits that we rely on if we had a real emergency in this community. And so to have them stressed and potentially not available if we were to have a fire or a flood or something else at the same time this is occurring is a problem. What's your relationship like with the feds? I know you recently met and are looking to having better communication. I think we met because um, the concern was the unpredictable nature of the releases uh, and, and notice. And I think there was some understanding that there needs to be open communication and transparency in that communication such that um, they can, in fact, give us as much notice as they can. And we understand as well that, you know, they're also hit with people who come across the border in large numbers and surrender. And so it's a little hard for them, too, and we understand that. Uh, but I think we need to have improved communication. Uh, it's clear that these agencies were communicating with police agencies, and that's fine. But unfortunately, sometimes those communications don't filter down to um, the other components of local government that can provide emergency assistance, such as our public health agency and our emergency management agency. So the weather's about to change. Even just this morning, Border Patrol apprehended 200-plus people in the West Desert area. Is there a plan that you've been able to say, we met last week and now we have a plan for what to do this week. We'll see it in action. The benefit of this meeting was that the clear understanding there needs to be task force and communication and some real clear answers about how we proceed because I think you're right. We're just entering the hot season and, and the hot season is where people's uh, safety is put in jeopardy if we are not able to respond in a timely manner. You can watch Lorraine Rivera's interview with Pima County Administrator Chuck Huckleberry on Arizona 360 this Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6. On August 21, 2016, I lost Trevor to suicide. He was the most kind and genuine friend I ever knew. He was the only person to call me every month when I went away to college. These weren't quick five-minute chats. These were genuine phone calls to update me on his life, his friends, and most importantly, what I had known as home. I never realized the importance of him or his calls until the month of August when I never got one. As his friends, we knew he struggled with sadness, but he never truly let it define him. I wish it was something he would have been able to talk about openly. I will always be proud of Trevor and his accomplishments in his short time here on earth. His laugh, smile, hugs, and compassion are something that truly made Trevor the light in all of our lives. That was student Christina Mendoza, a member of the University of Arizona chapter of the national student organization, Active Minds. She was reading from a remembrance of the life of a young man named Trevor. It was written by a friend following Trevor's death by suicide. 
Many similar stories and photos were attached to 1,100 empty backpacks that were spread out on the grass of the U of A Mall on Monday, along with signs bearing positive messages like, it's okay to not be okay, and keep going, the world needs you here. The backpacks represent the number of U.S. college students who took their own lives last year. The exhibit is called Send Silence Packing, and its purpose is to raise awareness of mental health and inspire suicide prevention by fighting the stigma that surrounds it. Volunteers from Active Minds and UA Campus Health were on hand, offering information to the many students and staff who slowed down to grasp the message. Hi, my name is Jasmine Kiongo, and I am the president of Active Minds, and I'm a senior here in UVA. Hi there, I'm Colin Tidwell. I'm the vice president of Active Minds and a psychology student at the University of Arizona. What are some of the things that you've heard uh, today from people who have come by and wondered what's going on here? We had one student write a note and leave it under a backpack talking about how impactful our event is because they had recently lost someone due to suicide and so they were grateful that this event was here and we had counselors here from CAPS. We were reaching out to students. Do you think that there is a change in the way that people deal with issues that may lead to suicide among their friends and loved ones. In your mind, what's been changing the last few years? I think a big change we see now is um, the influence social media has, both in helping folks reach out right to friends and loved ones, but also in keeping the stigma alive. Um, it can be very difficult when things seem perfect online to realize that you're not alone and that it's all right to ask for help. Something I've noticed is people are very good at hiding things and so we're just really trying to reach out to them so they can reach out to us and get that help um, especially from working with students a lot of them they act out because of those internal issues that they face and they're not sure where to go or even how to express what issues that they're facing and so as a peer mediator you know I counsel them and try to guide them to you know open up and meet with other counselors on campus and things like that. We're very thankful to have a commitment from Campus Health and the University of Arizona in terms of making a change on this campus uh, towards providing support for our students. But it is important to have these conversations about mental health and to educate our leaders on campus about the fact that having these conversations doesn't increase suicide attempts and it, it doesn't stigmatize more. In fact, allowing these conversations to happen makes it easier for people to get help when they really need it. Um, have you heard anything from anyone today, Jasmine, who thought that this display was unnecessary or was um, going in the wrong direction? Has anyone offered criticism of how you're expressing this message? Actually, no. We've got a lot of positive reactions from everyone who stopped by, and even people who don't have any questions, um, they just love to stop and read um, the stories on the backpacks. Also, people have been taking pictures and videos of the display, too, so nothing negative so far, which is great. <laughs> Hi, my name is Bill Cawthorn. I'm a psychologist at uh, Counseling and Psych Services, which is part of Campus Health here at the University of Arizona. The cards attached to these backpacks tell heartbreaking stories. This one is a portrait of a young man named Jackson. Um, could you read the last paragraph from this for us? Jackson was such a kind, caring, funny, generous, outgoing, and empathetic person. Jackson worked hard to battle his severe depression and anxiety, and we are so sad that this became a terminal mental illness for him in October of 2013. We are concentrating on the many good things that he did in his life and the wonderful memories we have of Jackson and the hope that others are doing the same. We are grateful that Jackson was a part of our lives for 21 years and will always love and miss him. I'm Leanne Hamilton. I'm Assistant Director of Health Promotion and Preventive Services at the U of A Campus Health Service. 
preventive services, how do you know when you're being effective? What metrics do you use to measure that? That's one of the toughest things about prevention because we never really know if we make a difference. We're hoping with the Send Silence Packing that people will be moved and seek help. And we have seen a huge increase in the number of people seeking help through our counseling and psych services. So I think we are getting the message out. The generation that's coming into college seems to be a high anxiety, high stress uh, group of young folks, maybe with not as many coping skills as perhaps folks have had in the past. And so we're working on that too, how to teach people to build their resiliency. Colin was telling me that this year there may be as many as nine new therapists added to your staff. Uh, Can you tell me some more about that and how that's funded? We have about 30 counselors on staff right now, and it's just not enough to keep up with the need. I think in the wake of reducing stigma and encouraging people to seek help, we are seeing those numbers go way up. Um, So there will be nine additional counselors hired. And that was part of uh, last year's tuition increase. ASUA, the president said, I won't support an increase unless there's more money for mental health counseling. As I look at people reading stories, this puts a face on it. And by seeing the sheer numbers of 1,100 backpacks representing the deaths that happen in the United States by suicide amongst college students, you can't ignore uh, that it's not a problem. Because we often, we don't talk about suicide. And often in the news media, There's been a stigma or really almost a prohibition against talking about suicide because of the taboo. We hear about homicides, but there are more suicides happening every day, and we don't talk about it. We need to end the silence. Uh, We need to stop the stigma. We need to encourage people to seek help and let them know that seeking help does show strength and that people can stay alive if they get help. Um, My name's Lucas. I'm a junior here at the U of A and I'm studying computer science. And Lucas, what was it that brought you over to this part of the mall to look at the exhibit today? I guess just the sheer numeration of backpacks. There's a sign saying they each represent someone who's been lost to suicide, and it's just a lot. What does reading the stories uh, mean to you? Why are you taking time to do that? A lot of these stories have, I guess, a common thread of just no one really hearing them out or realizing they were struggling while they were alive. And it's not enough now, but it's it feels important to recognize that, you know, hear them out now. It makes me wonder a bit, like, what kind of stories we leave behind, you know? What sort of backpack would I leave? Some of these are hopeful. There's been a couple that are about people who've survived attempts, but most of them are just stories from the people they've left behind, you know? The mission of Active Minds is to connect anyone in the campus community who needs help with mental health resources. We have a link to contact them and photos of the Send Silence Packing event on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The United States and Iran have had a complex and often adversarial relationship for decades, with vast differences in cultures and politics. But at the University of Arizona, there's a growing interest in learning the Persian language, also known as Farsi. 
Tony Paniagua spoke to some people who say it's a way to improve communication and understanding in the hopes of building a more positive international future. While she was working on her doctoral degree at Indiana University in 2018, Nargis Nematolahi heard about a job opening in Tucson. Nematolahi applied for the position and was later asked to conduct an interview. After that, she was invited to visit the University of Arizona. I came here, I did some teaching demonstrations, I gave a talk, and then one week after that I heard back from them that I was selected. Nematolahi is now in her second semester at the university. Peshnate, Peshnashe. We are Persti, Peshne. She teaches Persian to an eager group of students from a variety of backgrounds. I like my students very much. They are highly motivated, very lively students, and I'm very happy with the students. I also like the department very much. So I have very good colleagues. All of them are very supportive and helped me getting to know about the administration system. So I'm happy. Bad about you. Bad about you. You're talking about this Persian bread? Yeah, it's like really, really large hard bread. Oh, it's butter. Lauren Mogini is majoring in material science engineering. She was born in Tucson to an Iranian father and a mother of Filipino descent. Mogini remembers hearing her father using Persian with fellow Iranians, but he didn't really teach her the language. Mogini has been wanting to get closer to her roots, so she enrolled in the Persian class. This is my first year. Um, it's been a lot of fun. I've actually been able to hold conversations with my dad and my family in Farsids. Not too well, but they actually understand me and um, they've been pretty impressed with how I've been so far. I know a couple songs now, so it's a lot of fun. Mohammed Mustafa is also taking the class. Mustafa is a first-year PhD student in Arabic and Islamic studies. He was born in Egypt, where Arabic is the official language, but Persian is one of the region's other major tongues. Persian is an Islamic language, and we have lots of literature in Persian, Arabic, and Turkish, so it's one of the focal languages to study in the Middle East. Persian is spoken by more than 80 million people, and it's had a rich impact on literature. It's very beautiful. Khiligashank. <laughs> what, what did you say there? Uh, it's very beautiful because, you know, um, because I know Arabic, there are things which, okay, I can identify the, the script. It's written from right to left. And at some point, I find some words which have origins in Arabic. So it's somehow easy for me to, to learn. Nabatullahi says learning Persian, like any other language, requires time and dedication. It doesn't use the Roman alphabet like Spanish, French, or German, but there are some advantages once you overcome initial hurdles. Persian is one of the easiest languages in the Middle East, so it is much easier than uh, Arabic and Turkish because it has no gender. There are lots of cognate words with uh, European languages. And uh, in my classes, I try to, uh, so it's a communicative approach class. So uh, we have every week, we have a team and we work on that. And at the end of the week, the students will be able to do certain things with the language that they learn. So it is very goal oriented. Nematolahi was hired as part of a million-dollar grant at the University of Arizona, which was announced in 2018. Professor Kamran Talotov is with the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies. This grant was the continuation of a series of grants uh, we have been receiving from uh, Roshan uh, Culture um, Heritage Institute, uh, which is a private uh, nonprofit uh, organization that supports 
the uh, dissemination and promotion of uh, Persian culture uh, in the world. For Nargis and Matolahi, the opportunity to teach is about much more than vocabulary, memorization, or testing. She hopes to build bridges among different cultures and nations, especially in light of the ongoing tensions between the governments of the United States and Iran. Namatolahi has a brother who lives in Canada, but their parents and the sister are still in Iran. When I send them the videos or the recordings of my students, they also get very happy because they feel somehow connected to the students. For all Iranians, I think, knowing that some students in the U.S. are learning Persian and not only the language, the culture also, it's very happy. I mean, everyone is very excited, especially because of this not very good relation between the two governments. It's very good to know that people can learn more about the Persian culture, not through media, but through its language and beauties of Persian poetry. Namatolahi says language, just like music or food, is a great way to break the ice and turn strangers into friends. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Next week, we'll meet Iranian immigrant and Oro Valley resident Dr. Nushi Motaraf, who's written a book based on Persian fairy tales. Author Jannie Lee Semner is best known for her fantasy books, where her creations have included a complicated society of mystical fairies and a set of natural laws that govern the use of magic. But her latest series is based on a more down-to-earth premise— finding magic in the wonders of history and the natural world through the eyes of a very brave and brilliant young girl. Next, Jannie Lee Simner reads an excerpt from her new young reader's novel, Tierney West, Professional Adventurer. Tierney West stalked through the forest, silent as the great cats of the African plains, deadly as the fabled royal assassins of Arrakistan. With the eyes that had gotten her dubbed Little Eagle, she scanned the verdant undergrowth, searching for the treasure hidden within. Some motion made her pause. The shifting of a leaf, a scent upon the humid wind. With a single fluid motion, she was up among the branches of an ancient oak. Adjusting her hat against the slanting sun, she settled in to watch to wait. Tierney, Tierney, come out here this instant. I remained hidden among the branches of my favorite oak, not moving, not breathing. Well, trying not to breathe. You would think that if Houdini could stay underwater for four minutes, if T.J. Redstone could conceal herself in the airless tomb of Arakistan's hidden city, for nearly a quarter hour, I could hold my breath long enough for Mom to cross the backyard. I tried to breathe out slowly, through my nose, the way TJ did when hiding behind the curtains of the Arakistani ambassador's chambers, waiting for him to reveal the location of the lost amulet of Kazir. But instead, my breath came out in a noisy rush, through my nose and my mouth, and probably even my ears, I shifted among the branches, sending autumn leaves crackling to the ground. Mom looked sharply up. Tierney Markowitz, what are you doing up there? Tierney West, I said, all need for stealth gone. My name's Tierney West. 
why is it so hard to get people to call you what you want? Mom sighed. She enjoyed sighing, especially around me. West is not what it says on your birth certificate. That's what it says on the covers of Dad's books. It's a pseudonym, Tierney. That's different. Mom and I had had this discussion before. You changed your name after the divorce. Why can't I change mine? When you're 18, you can do whatever you want. Until then, you'll do as I say. But I didn't want to wait until I was 18 to do cool stuff. I wanted adventures now. Right now, Mom went on, I say you're to get down here and put on some decent clothes. Or have you forgotten we're meeting Greg for dinner in less than a half hour? Of course I hadn't forgotten. Why else would I be hiding? Tierney? All right, all right. I climbed down a few branches, then jumped to the ground. My landing wasn't quite worthy of the great cats, but it was close. I only scraped one knee. And my hat, broad-brimmed and woven from pale straw, a gift from Dad when he visited the Amazon to write the river's secret, stayed on my head, as all true adventurers' hats do. Tierney, be careful, Mom shouted, as if I were still up in that tree and not right there beside her. One of these days you're going to get yourself killed. I am always careful, I said, as I stalked past her across the yard and toward the house. Just like TJ. Just like Dad. The trouble is, Mom doesn't understand about adventuring. She and Dad used to argue about it all the time, back when they were still married. Dad travels a lot, researching his books, and Mom complained she never knew when he was going to run off to Bangkok or Marrakesh or Algiers. This isn't like the old days, when adventure waited at every turn, when the world was still filled with unscaled mountains and undiscovered ancient cities. Most people don't even call themselves adventurers anymore. They're anthropologists, or journalists, or gentlemen of leisure. But there's more adventure out there than most people think, if you know where to look. Just ask T.J. Redstone. Well, you can't ask her, because she's the heroine of Dad's books. But if you could, that's what she'd tell you. Her business cards even say, Professional Adventurer. That was Janie Lee Semner, reading from her latest book, Tierney West, Professional Adventurer, published in Tucson by Choya Bear Press. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.